Welcome to the Parbar Podcast, episode 14, where we are continuing our walk through the book of Genesis one chapter at a time. And as a reminder, I won't be able to cover every detail of every chapter in these short episodes of this podcast, but uh, hopefully I will cover some interesting tidbits that will help you read the Bible better. And today we are looking at Genesis chapter 3, and the big question, the one that I'd like to address, is when does Genesis 3 happen. Sometimes we have the thought that Adam and Eve existed for weeks, months, years in the Garden of Eden before they fell. But the reading of the text, I think, is rather plain that Genesis 3 occurs on day 7 of creation. When we looked at Genesis 2, for example, we saw that it is day 6 magnified. Everything that happens on day 6 in Genesis 1 is given to us in greater detail in Genesis 2. And everything that happens in Genesis 3 is what occurs on day 7, magnified. At the end of Genesis 2, God leaves, and he comes back at the break of day in Genesis 3-7. Which day would that be? Well, it is the seventh day, it is the Sabbath day, it is the day of the Lord in which he visits his people. Now let me try to make my argument a little bit better. First, we read that God came in the cool of the day in Genesis 3.8. But if you have a Bible with footnotes, you'll read in the footnote that this is not a good translation. This is a traditional translation, and it is not accurate to the Hebrew text. God does not come in the cool of the day. uh, And nearly every commentary recognizes this, and so do the footnotes in most Bibles. It's a shame we just don't fix it. The Hebrew word, which you may have heard before, is ruach, which means spirit. So what must have happened is that some translators thought the phrase was referring to the breezy time of the day, though it doesn't mention anything about the time of day at all. And hence, the cool time of the day is not even in consideration. I'm not sure how else it got translated this way, but nowhere else in the Bible does this phrase appear like this, and nowhere else in the Bible does ruach mean cool nor does it anywhere refer to a time of the day. Authors such as Meredith Klein argue that the phrase says that Yahweh appears in the spirit of the day, the spirit associated with the day that is the light. So the argument goes that God came at dawn. And he came, it wasn't uh, the voice of Yahweh, it was the sound of Yahweh, and he's not walking in the garden, he's coming in the garden. This is the glory cloud of God coming with all the sound of thunder and of rushing wind of his approach everywhere else we read in scripture. This is why Adam hides. It was a terrifying thing for sinful man to hear the thunder of God coming, seeing his glory cloud full of fire approaching. This is Yahweh appearing in his glory cloud on the Lord's day to come and visit his people for either blessing or judgment. I think this points to God coming on day seven, as dawn came on the horizon. Secondly, everything that happens in Genesis 2 happens on day six, as we saw, the creation of man, the commandments from God, the naming of the animals, man's deep sleep, the creation of woman and their marriage. And we're told that at that, at that marriage, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. 
And what happens here is that God leaves Adam and Eve alone together for the night. We know that God leaves because we read, if we read on, we notice the ignoring the uninspired chapter break, we find that God comes back. If you take the chapter three, if you take the little chapter, the number three off of your Bible page and you read the story, there's no breaks in between. God leaves the, the married couple for one night and he comes back in the morning. If he comes back, he must have left. The whole story flows on from the marriage with Adam and Eve naked and unashamed to the mention of the serpent, to the temptation and the eating and the judgment. There's no reason. There's nothing in the text of scripture that would suggest that we ought to insert between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 days, weeks, months, or even years between them. If Genesis 2 is day 6, it's most natural to read Genesis 3 as day 7, with Yahweh God returning after the night in which he withdrew his special presence, the wedding night of his son and of his daughter. Thirdly, Yahweh coming and drawing near and seeking to have his people draw near to him at the center of the garden sanctuary, where there are two sacramental trees, uh, he is then exercising judgment. This gives us the theme that we find later on in Scripture, associated with the Sabbath day of rest and the day of the Lord. Now, it's possible that Yahweh intended to appear every day to Adam and Eve in the garden, you know, day 7, day 8, day 9, day 156, day 322. But the pattern of the scriptures makes it more plausible that Yahweh intended to appear and have his people draw near to him for what is known as a holy convocation on the seventh day, the Sabbath. Man would have his six days of work and rest and of work and then rest with God and adjoining of human and divine rest on the seventh day when man brings his labors to God's judgment for approval. Fourthly, it's clear from Genesis 3, I think, that Adam and Eve had not yet even eaten from the tree of life, lest they live forever. I think it is unlikely that they'd been in the garden for very long when they were expelled from it. I mean, how likely is it that they'd eat peaches and plums and apples and bananas and deliberately stay away from the one special tree that they were allowed to eat, the tree in the center of the garden? And how likely is it that they would have passed through even the very first Sabbath, drawing near to worship God and yet not partake of the permissible sacramental tree? In other words, we could make an analogy. Is it likely that the first Lord's service in the early church would not have included the Lord's Supper? It makes sense to me then to think that they were expelled without enjoying the very first Sabbath rest with God on the first Sabbath of creation and without eating of the tree of life. And that implies that their sin took place on the first Sabbath day of the world. Fifthly, expulsion before Adam and woman ever experienced Sabbath rest sure seems to me to fit with other themes connected with Sabbath and the rest of the Bible. No one has entered into the full Sabbath rest of God until Christ came. Because of sin, man cannot enter rest on the first Lord's day. Only when Jesus ascends into heaven did God's people enter into God's own rest, and in union with Christ also enter into the rest that Adam would have enjoyed had he persevered in faithfulness. For these reasons, these reasons at least, I'm inclined to see the fall of Adam as happening between the evening of day six and the morning of day seven, so that Yahweh has declared everything very good at the end of day six. But when he comes to the garden in the spirit of the day, on the Sabbath, 
he sees that Adam has already rebelled. Now I'll add here that Satan's fall takes place at the same time. Satan cannot have fallen before the end of day six because God sees everything that he made, which includes the heavens. Uh, that's Genesis 1.1. God made heaven and the earth. Remember, he made heaven, that is the heavenly realm, formed, filled, and enlightened. Formed, filled, enlightened, which means it had, the hosts of heaven were created instantly. And Satan could not have fallen before the end of day six because God sees everything that he had made and he called it very good, which must include the angel that we now call Satan. So John Milton in Paradise Lost was quite wrong. Satan did not fall before the creation of the world, nor did he fall between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, as some dispensationalists have taught. He was still very good at the end of day six. But then he comes into the garden as the serpent, and the serpent is described as crafty, or prudent, or wise. It doesn't mean he's already sinful. This prudence, this wisdom is a good thing. It's wisdom that Adam needs if he's going to move out of the garden to rule in the world. If he's going to graduate from being a priest to being a king, he needs someone to teach him wisdom. The serpent is there in God's providence to give Adam this wisdom to teach him. Just as the previous animals taught Adam that it was not good to be alone, this new animal was going to give him wisdom. So when does Satan fall? Maybe by the time of his first question in Genesis 3.1, when he speaks to Eve, when he says, has God said? But when you look at that question, it's not necessarily a bad question in itself. Has God said you shall not eat of the tree from any tree of the garden? This could be a question to bring about wisdom. It's not a bad question. And if the serpent is there to train these two in wisdom, it might be something like this. You know, you might ask your kids, did mom say you couldn't ever have a cookie? And your children would say, no, dad. She said we could have one after supper. And you would say, aha, that is the right answer. So now they can stop asking for a cookie and eat their supper and receive the cookie in its proper time. The question is not necessarily evil or rebellious, but it could be a test. However, certainly, by the time the serpent quotes God's word, word for word, with a lie in front of it, then he has certainly rebelled. In Genesis 3-4, we read this, And the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. This is when the devil fell. This is when Satan the angel fell. The angel fell on the same day as man. Mm -hmm.